just like to mention this morning that um, we had the men's conference yesterday, and we had uh, about 18 men that came, and uh, we had uh, about about 70 men all together from three churches, and it was a, a great blessing uh, for the men to be able to just listen to preaching. We broke out in uh, groups where we uh, had some questions after the, that had to do with the message, and we talked about that for an hour, then at a time of prayer, and then we uh, had another message, and then lunch, uh, and then in the evening uh, I preached, so it was Pastor Sherman, Pastor Lasardo, and pa- myself, uh, and it was just a good time of singing, fellowshipping of the men, uh, hearing the Word of God, getting away from our old crazy schedules and just relaxing in the Lord for a day. And I think all the men would, would, would say the same thing. And so next year, we're going to announce it uh, ahead of time, put it on the schedule so more men could come and be part of the, a, a great day. And uh, so that's something I just wanted to say this morning. So if you weren't able to come, we missed you, and uh, we want you to come next time. All right. So we want to try to get, give you a heads up for next year. And, uh, and then somebody says to me, I think we should have two or three of these a year. And uh, I said, that, that's a lot to do. But anyway, I uh, just want to share that with you. It was a great time with the men yesterday. Uh, we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. Of course, I'm really fleshing out uh, the ways to resist the enemy. I went through the book of 1 Peter, and now we are uh, at the end of it. And we're looking at how to resist the enemy. Of course, today I'm going to be more in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning verse number 20 onwards. So I just want to read the first Peter passage in verse number 9, and then I want to go to Ephesians chapter 4. And it says in 1 Peter chapter chapter 5, verse 9, But resist him firm in your faith, knowing the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, turn your Bibles forward to Ephesians chapter 4, and let us read or follow along with me as I read verse 17 to verse 24. And the Bible says this. So this I say and affirm together, Ephesians 4, 17, with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. And they have become calloused and have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as Jesus, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in, the, in accordance with the, with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Let's pray. Father, we just pray this morning as we 
look at the Word of God, and as we consider being in this world, which we know that the flesh is something we war against, the world and its current thoughts and philosophies and ideologies we war against, but we also war against an enemy who's against us. Because we're in Christ, we are his target. And so, Lord, I pray that you would enable us to understand what it means to resist him, to stand up against him. And I know, Lord, that your word is sufficient to give us ways to do that. There are more than five. But I pray, Lord, that we would consider them very seriously and implement them in the practice of our everyday lives. So, Lord, we can follow what James says, resist the enemy and he will flee from you. So I pray this in Christ's name this morning. Amen. So as I've been saying that uh, in our, the word of God, there, there has been uh, exhortations that Peter has given in this epistle, the exhortation of humility, the exhortation of vigilance, but the, also the exhortation of resistance. And so that's what we have been looking at uh, these weeks, and we have been considering ways to resist the enemy. Of course, the more I thought about it, I, I says, okay, there was five ways I gave you, but I'm up to eight ways, and we'll probably do those too because uh, the, the Word of God gives us ample amount of things to put on as armor so we can stand up against the enemy. And so, so far we have looked at the first one, and that was to resist him in the faith. In other words, that God has given believers a detection system, uh, that, and that the this detection system is the very Word of God delivered to the saints, to the church, that alarm system is the faith, uh, that we would have a personal confidence in God and the word of God that he's given us to be able to use against the enemy when he, he flings his, his lies and deceptions against our, uh, toward us in our life. And so truly as a Christian, as Christians learn the truth, they become strong in the faith and they're able to detect with the light of Scripture the very dark mixtures of lies and truths that Satan mixed together uh, to twist uh, the very truth of Scripture because he's a master twister of the Word of God and that we can know when he's actually working. A second way we resist the enemy is by discerning our own strengths and weaknesses and our own tendencies to sin, then fighting against them with the Word of God. In other words, we know what our patterns of sin are. We recognize our particular bents towards one way of sinning or another way of unrighteousness, and we take care of that, and we uh, recognize what they are, and we put them aside, all right? And then, of course, we also, as we detect other people's patterns of sin, we can help come alongside to empathize with them and to aid them with the Word of God with their, in their struggles and... Uh, to do it in a very uh, gracious and non-judgmental way. So then a believer, a believer who grows in their knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ, they become more self-aware. Uh, they become aware of a lot of things. In other words, the, the light bulbs get turned on when we're Christians about everything. Uh, and we can see way more clearly as we learn the Word of God what to do. And as we do that, 
uh, we are able to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Uh, and so we begin to struggle with our own sin in order to lay aside and replace it with righteous behavior. A third way, we already covered all these, is that we, re- we, we resist the antagonist by maintaining a sanctified imagination. And remember, imagination specifically is important to control because it's either going to be the playground of good or evil. And, and remember, the ability to imagine has been a God-given gift to us. But remember, if our imagination becomes filthy or soiled by what we're putting into it or what we're, what we're allowing our mind to think about, and it's going to, it becomes dirty, then it becomes, it becomes a place where it just breeds other kinds of sin. So remember, all sin, not least sexual sin, begins with the imagination. Therefore, we need to feed the imagination with the Word of God. As the Word of God tells us that uh, the Lord guards our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus as we allow him to set up sentinels and post armed guards before our mind, uh, our emotions, our passions, and our will, not allowing things to enter in that is going to disrupt our peace. And so that comes when we learn to uh, have a sanctified imagination. In other words, we evaluate what we're thinking about how long we think about it, what are the things that are driving our thoughts, and we evaluate them. We're able to do that with the Word of God. And so today, we're looking at this next one. The next one is that of resisting the adversary by putting off sin and putting on righteousness. Now, the passage that I read here that we see according to Ephesians chapter 4, Christians are different from those in the world, because Christians are being conformed to the image and the likeness of God. And this transformation shows that new life has been implanted in the heart of a believer, of a born-again believer, and that believer belongs now to a new family. They, are, they live in a new kingdom, and of course, they have a new master and a new father. So we Christians are different. We know it. We know we, we sense the change once we believed in Jesus Christ. And unbelievers know it too because now we go into the, our families, we go into our workplace, and we're talking about the Lord, we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about what we're learning, and it's like foreign language to them. They don't, they don't get that unless our, our, some of our friends and family are believers themselves. But you know what I mean. We're different, and unbelievers detect that we're different, and then they watch us. And as soon as we do something wrong, they are pointing it out. You know what? And rightfully so. They ought to be doing that. So then we know that learning Christ is the key to the Christian life. That is the ever-growing knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that includes being done with our old way of life. So that means when we become believers, we have actually a new responsibility. We have a new responsibility. Why? Because we have a new life. And so we're to don, we're to put on, and we're to grow in this new responsibility. And there are three, three terms that show us generally that what we are to do as believers, that 
I'm, I'm talking about believers who have met Christ, who have received Christ, and of course, who are now learning Christ every single day of their lives. So that means that you and I are first to put off our old way of life. Now, if you look at verse number 22 of Ephesians chapter 4, it says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. So now the Bible is saying us, now this this particular verb that they use here to to actually uh, put off is really, it really means once for all to, to make a definite concluding action concerning what? Your old manner of life. The way you used to do things, the way you used to say things, the way you used to respond to people, the way you used to think, the way you used to plan, the way you used to even buy things. All that formal manner of life needs to be reevaluated as a believer. And the Bible says to be laid aside, to strip off, to be done with. In other words, at once and for good. The idea is to throw it from you as fast and as far as you can. To put off your formal, your former way of life, your past conduct and behavior, that old man. That old, unregenerate self needs to be done with. And, of course, the Bible tells us that we are enabled by God to perform this action. The Bible never asks us or tells us or commands us to do something we're unable to do. We are actually able to do it because now we're in God's family, we have God's spirit, we have God's word to actually do what the Bible says. So we are to do it with urgency. That's, it's given the sense of urgency in our text. Well, if you look once more, once more at verse number 22, it gives us really reasons for our urgency. The first one in verse number 2, the old self which is being corrupted. It's because of the corruption presently taking place in the old nature. That means that it's still there. There is an ongoing process of decay going on. The old former self was not only corrupt, but ever growing more and more corrupt. The old nature's behavior is putrid. It's putrid. It's crumbling. It's, it's like rotting garbage. It's like stinking cadavers ripe for being disposed of. And if you've ever been around anything dead, and it, it happened a few days, and that, that thing's been laying there. A deer, in the, you know, we have a lot of deer in New Jersey. A lot of people hit them, and they lay along the side of the road, and, uh, and they decay. And you drive past there with your car with open windows, and it's like the stink is so, I mean, the, the smell is so distinct. You know it's a dead body, right? Just, just recently, uh, Dwayne Muller and myself had to discard of a raccoon, that we found, um, we found, and when we found it, it was it was already hard. Uh, so, but when and the reason why we found it is because we smelled something and we looked everywhere to find it, and we finally found it. And it wasn't a small raccoon; it was a big raccoon. 
but it was such a distinct smell. And you could not stand there and smell it too long. With I got to get out of here. I, I need some fresh air, you know. And uh, so we cleaned up, got it out, and I doused it with uh, Clorox a couple times, and uh, just to get the smell out. But see, th- that dead things, rotting things, do not have a pleasant smell. And the point being that you have to look at your old manner of life like that. You have to look at it as it stinks like rotting garbage, like dead bodies. And why would I want to drag that around with me? You can't drag that into the new life. Because if you drag it into the new life, you know what people are going to say? Nothing's changed in your life. You're the same old person I knew when we partied together. You, nothing's changed. So, see, that, that corruption is still there and still present in our lives. And it says also in verse number 22, the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. There's still this way in which the, the, the old man, there's a destruction presently working in the old man. And it's really this strong, deceitful lusts that are still there. You know, even as a believer, temptation is powerful when, it, when it's pre- presented to you, right? Well, that is not your new nature responding to that. That is your old corruption that's still remaining in you, that we will, will still have, but we can overcome it more and more until we... We are heading for glory, but that's still there. And that old nature with its strong lusts, when Satan dangles his temptations before you and I, we feel the power of that temptation. And we get tempted in our affections and our desires to go that way. Sometimes we do it, and Satan wants to try to trip you up so you don't think about it first. He goes right for the desires and the affections first, And then later on you say when you fall into sin and you commit sin, what happens is you say, you know what, I should have thought that. I knew the scripture. I knew the principles that God wanted me to put into practice, and I did not think about it and evaluate it first before I gave in to that bait on the hook, and I finally took it and was hooked. I didn't resist the enemy when, when, when temptation came. So... The person's old nature with its lusts is their own executioner, bringing them closer and closer to eternal death if someone's not a believer. And and so that corruption and destruction are inseparably connected, it says in this passage of Scripture. And a person who is Christless has no power to overcome either one, but a person who is in Christ has the power given by God to overcome that. How do I know that? Well, look at, at but go to back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 19. Ephesians 1, 19, because in this passage of Scripture, we're exhorted from this passage that I'm just mentioning to throw off this strong, corrupting desire, this old nature, as well as all the vanities and the vices of the pagan world, and how are we to do that? How are we ever to, to go on putting off this corruption and this damaging destruction? Well, in chapter 1, verse number 19, it says, 
And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and sealed him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, what he is saying there is that believers have actually the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is given to believers to overcome their sin. We, can, we have resurrection power provided to us because of our union with Jesus Christ and because of the Spirit of God that indwells us that we have the power to say no to any temptation, whether it comes from the world, whether it comes from our own remaining corruption, or whether it comes directly from a demon, that we are to say we we have the ability and the power to say no to it. And we're reminded what a Christian is already supposed to know. We're supposed to know that as we live our lives. So Christians are first to put off the old way of life by throwing off the strong, corrupting desires of the old nature and by exercising the power already at work in them as a believer. That's what we're to do. And remember, if you take off dirty clothes and then you go take a shower, you come back and put on your dirty clothes, I don't know anybody who does that. I have never heard people doing that. But if we put off our sin, right, we're cleansed by the blood of Christ, why would we want to go back and put on our sin garments and then live like that? See, the point, we're trying to, the Scripture is showing us that we don't have to live that way anymore, and that's what we're going to be tempted to go back to the old ways. But the Bible is telling us, no, you don't, you don't do that. Throw that stuff off. Get rid of that stuff. Put it aside. And then secondly, we are to do this in our passage. In verse number 23, it says, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So secondly, Christians are to go on being renewed in the Christ-like way of thinking. Ephesians 4 says that we're to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. That means the believer's whole life is to be evidence of a constant inner change of their thinking, of their outlook, of their behavior. There's got to be evidence there that this resurrection power is working in your life by the changes that are taking place on you by God himself as you cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, in verse number 24, there is a third thing that we are to do, and it's this. It says, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So this third thing we're to do is we're to keep putting on the new way of living. That's what we're to do. And as we think of that, we, we can see that there's no vacuum left for a believer. You, you put off the old, you don't say, okay, I put off the old, I guess I'm finished. No, you, when you put off the old, you take on the new and you put that on. If you're sinning in a certain way, uh, let's say your sin is hate or 
and you're putting off that hate, right? But you're not done when you put off the hate and repent of that sin. Now you have to put on the opposite of what hate would be. What is the righteous behavior that opposes that attitude or that mindset of hate? Well, it's going to be a forgiving, loving spirit in which you esteem others higher than yourself, all right? So I'm going to be putting on that forgiveness and that gentleness of spirit and that patience that comes from the Holy Spirit of God so I can keep off that old, stinky, dirty garment of hate. So the true Christian is constantly being renewed in the image of his creator after the likeness of God. And part of the image of God's righteousness and holiness is in, in the truth is going to be manifested in our life. It's a communicable attribute of God. God was righteous. Believers in Christ can be righteous, right? God is a God of truth. Believers in Christ can be people of truth. See, that's, it all goes together because we have this, the power given to us by God And when one comes to Jesus Christ, a transformation starts and continues to take place until until the day the Christian steps through the door of death into glory. And we drop off these bodies and we, we step into the presence of God and that is going to be a very, very good day. See, death is defeated in Christ. See, that's the hope of the believer. And so that brings me to the next thing, and it means this, that putting on the old way or putting off the old way of life includes living in the fullness of Christ. Now, if you look at our text there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 18, it says this. It says, being darkened, in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. But also, the Word of God tells us that a believer is somebody who is filled, or excuse me, 518, it says this, and do not, do not be drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So being living in the fullness of Christ is being filled with the Spirit. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 23, it says it again, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, in verse number 19, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. All right, now you think about that, you say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean? to be filled up with the fullness of God. It's, it's even hard to wrap your mind around it, what exactly that means. Now, let, let me mention that the fullness of Christ is actually something very practical. It first comes when someone has realized what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. And with this understanding, they feel no, they no longer belong to themselves, that their new purpose in the world is to show the world that the Lord Jesus Christ has delivered them from sin, 
by his work on the cross and that they have been made holy and God is preparing them for heaven. They know that from the word of God. So the progression is really given by the Apostle Paul in Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in verse chapter 3 and verse number 16, where he says this, verse 16 to 19 of chapter 3, turn up back there, and it says this, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And then in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and, the, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And then, of course, in this passage where he says that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. So being filled up with the fullness of God is really connected to being filled with the Spirit, being filled with the Word. So if Christ is in me and in you, then all the fullness of God is in me and you. In the sense that it's the quality of life that is in me and you. It's the, it's the quality of God's life in you and me. That's what the scripture is saying. So see, a believer definitely is different because of the very life of God in their soul. So then we must stop thinking in terms of quantity, rather we must think in terms of quality. It is the quality of God's life that is in the believer. The qualities of the communicable attributes of God are given to believers to communicate to the world that they are different because of their union with Christ. And what are some of those communicable Communicable attributes believers are to communicate in their life. I already mentioned uh, that we are to be holy. The Bible even says, be holy for I am holy. You find that in 1 Peter. The righteousness of God, the justice of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the loving kindness of God, the long-suffering of God, the faithfulness of God are all attributes of God that we can actually live out in our life. Now, how does that look practically? What is true of the believer who knows what it is to be filled up with the fullness of God? What does it mean to be filled up with the fullness of God? Well, there's several things I can include on this. The first thing, it means that God dwells in us in such a way as to control us. The Lord controls our thinking. He controls our feelings. Because if you have right theology, it's going to also control your feelings. In other words, it's not my feelings that lead me. It is truth that leads me. And when I'm led by truth, truth has a way of organizing my affections and my feelings and put them in the right place. People today are pretty much led by their feelings. This is the way I, I, why are you doing that? Because I feel like I'm doing it. Why are you doing that? Because my heart's leading me to do it. Those are not good things to follow. If we have truth, then our thinking is going to be dominated by God. 
the, the, the great difference between a Christian's mind and a non-Christian's mind is that the non-Christian's mind is controlled by the world and its current thoughts and, the, and of course, by the remaining, by their flesh themselves, their desires and affections, and it's also controlled by, yes, Satan is pulling the strings behind the scenes because the Bible says he is the God of this world. You think that's what's going on in Washington is just human, whatever you want to call it, foolishness? No, Satan's behind the whole thing because he wants to not only take down the church, he wants to take down nations. And he's done it. But see, they don't, they're too blind to the fact that there's anything spiritual or that, matter of fact, if God's thrown out of your country or from the government's the governmental level, then all they are doing is making decisions based on their own desires and affections and passions and what the, what the world says, how the world's pressing them. And that's what we have today. We have all this confusion in, in our political system because truth is not there anymore, because God is not the standard anymore. The Ten Commandments have been thrown out. Well, what do you think? There's no way to guide your behavior. There's no way to guide your thinking. You're on your own. And when we are on our own, we are always on the road to destruction. Always. There's never a, you cannot recover from that unless Christ intervenes and becomes your Lord and your Savior. So the Christian mind, is a mind that has been transformed, that has been and is being renewed by the Holy Spirit, and that the whole mode and the whole method of our thinking since we become believers has changed. I remember that when, when somebody, before I became a Christian, somebody gave me a Bible. I didn't have a Bible. And they said, here, take this Bible. And I said, well, what do I do with it? And they said, well, read the Gospel of John. So I never saw this guy again. He looked like John Denver. Uh, with the haircut and the round glasses. That's all I remember. I was sitting on a beanbag, gave me the Bible. And so he says, listen, when you, I said, well, I'm going in the Marine Corps. What do I do? do?" He says, well, when you get time, read that. So I never forgot what he said. I brought the Bible with me. I got my first duty station and I was free to read the Bible. And so I had my Bible on my my bunk and I'm reading it. And the, the, you know, the, I know the bunks are very close. I mean, like this much space and there's, well, the guy saying, well, hey, what are you reading over there? I said, I'm reading the Bible. I said, he said, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading the Gospel of John. And he says, oh, you're born again. And I, and I said, what was that? Born again? I, I'm, I'm a Christian. That's what I said. So he says, so he knew right away because he wasn't a believer that I didn't know what I, was ta- what I was talking about. I didn't know where I was at spiritually. And so I, I could not understand the Gospel of John. I tried to read it. And then he says, you know what, why don't you come with me to a Bible study? So I went, I went with him to a Bible study, and I go into this room that was filled with sailors, and I'm the only Marine in there. It's like, you know, oil and water, you know. And there's no seats. Uh, and so there's a bookshelf on the back. I said, I'll just go. I'm not going to bother anyone. I'm going to get back on the bookshelf. Well, it just happened that the bookshelf and the eye contact of the preacher were right in line with me. And so I'm... I'm I'm hearing him preach the word of God, and I'm, and I'm reading my Bible. I'm finding my place and reading my Bible, and I'm saying to my, and he's giving the gospel. And I'm saying, you know what? I've never asked Christ to save me. I've never, I've never repented of my sin of unbelief to, and believed in Jesus Christ. 
I've never done that. It's all about what, what I was trying to do to, to work my way to heaven. And, and that day, I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. That was July 25th, 1977. I trusted Christ on that day. And you know what blew me away the most? When I'm talking about here, you go from darkness to light. What blew me away the most is I took my Bible, and I said, I'm going to read the Gospel of John. And I said, I, I could understand this. I, I could not believe it. I, I read John chapter 3 about being born again. Now I know what he means by that. And I was so psyched that the word of God became alive to me. Everything exploded in my life. The whole world exploded when I became a believer. And, um, and it's never changed. It's, it's never been different. My desire and, and love for the word of God has not waned. It's got, it just increased. And, and so I knew that day this is different than what I ever experienced. I, I didn't have any kind of light, you know, shining bolt. There was no lightning bolts. There was no earthquakes. It wasn't that. It was just that I can understand the Bible. How, how does that happen? Because the Spirit of God came into me. Now, I didn't understand that at that point. But the thing is that every single day, one, one thing that's interesting about being in the military, there's nowhere else to go. So you know what? Every day, you know what we did? We studied the Bible when I had my free time with other believers. So every day for seven months, we studied the Bible. And so by, after that seven months, man, I was like, yeah. You know? So I come back to the United States on December 25th. I get baptized in Florida. I get baptized and said, wow, this is incredible. And, I, and I'm only doing it because I see it in the Bible. I see it in the Bible. Other believers are showing me in the Bible what I need to do. And that I do it. And the Lord just keeps leading you, expanding your knowledge, giving you confidence in what he has done in salvation and what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And your whole life is different. Your hope is, is alive. Your future is secure. See, that's what a believer is. This is not a whole hum existence. This is real life. Just like it says in Corinthians, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. There's the difference right there. So the Lord, what, it, what does it mean to be full up with the fullness of God? Our thinking is dominated by God and his word. Secondly, our emotions are brought under control. When God controls our heart, we have ceased to be, to be governed by ourselves. It's not about ourselves anymore. When, when the love of self goes out, the love of God comes in. And then, of course, our actions are brought under the control. If you do have the mind of Christ, will you not be different in all respects? Will you not think differently if you have the mind of Christ? Will you not speak differently if you have the mind of Christ? 
Will you not act differently if you have the mind of Christ? If we have the mind of Christ, we'll be different in every way, in our emotions, in our actions, in our thinking, in our behavior. We will be different because the fullness of God dwells in me by his spirit. And here are some other things, too. It means to be filled up with the fullness of God. Number two, it means that God dwells in us in such a way as to give us a desire to know him. John 17, verse 3, it says, This is eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God actually gives us the desire to know him. It's in us. We want to know more of our Christ, our Lord. And then thirdly, it means that God dwells in us in such a way as to increasingly conform us to the pattern of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you know anything about the Bible in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of, of the Spirit being growing in the love and the joy and the long-suffering and the kindness and the goodness and the self-control that God gives us all in one package, all at one time, that we comprehensively are being made like Christ in all those areas all at one time. I don't know how that happens, but the Lord does it. And then the last thing would be that it means that God dwells in us in such a way as to satisfy us completely. John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Well, remember when Jesus said this to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. In other words, God satisfies the rumblings of our souls. He satisfies the longings of our souls. We don't know what to long for, and that's why people long for things that sometimes even destroy them. To get some kind of, some kind of fulfillment in this life, they long for things. The Bible says you come to Christ, and Christ will satisfy you completely. When you, when you are, when a true Christian is definitely someone who is completely satisfied. The Lord has been so good to me and he has so blessed me in a spiritual realm that I can do nothing else but give him glory and honor. And I am satisfied. I don't want anything else. That's what it means. I don't want any other thing except Christ because he's the one who allows me to not thirst for anything else. He does that. Now, that means this, though. If you and I are filled up with the fullness of Christ, there are going to be results to that. And what are the results to it? Well, if you notice in our passage in Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse number 19. It says, here's the results, that if you're filled with the Spirit, which is the same thing as, having, as being filled up with the fullness of God, in verse number 18, verse 19, it says this, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So what are the results of the fullness of God in my life? What are, the, what are the, 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 actually the results I can actually see? Well, 
it says it right there. The first result would be that it includes the evidence of the Spirit's fullness would be this. We have joy. Verse number 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with the Lord, uh, with your heart to the Lord. So as our life becomes more like Christ's, we find ourselves constantly repeating and rejoicing over the truths of Scripture. And we end up singing. We end up whistling songs, which capped, you know, one, one day I says, you know, God's given us, uh, you know, abilities to whistle. So one day I had everybody say, let's, let's whistle this song, this hymn. But we couldn't get through it. So I said, I gave that up. So we whistle, though, and, and because we have songs in our heart, which capt- really which captures biblical concepts. We sing hymns this morning uh, because the hymns were written to capture biblical concepts. So we're not just reading the word, we're hearing the word sung, right? And we, 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 we get all kinds of ways that we get the word to us. And so we're, we're hearing it sung, sung and we're gathering from those songs concepts and teachings and principles that are founded in the word of God. So this means that the object and the focus of a spirit-filled person is the Lord, not themselves, not their problems, but the Lord. They are occupied with spiritual things, meditating upon the enjoyment of them. In other words, they have joy. They have real joy on the inside. And they express this joy outwardly in the fellowship with the family of believers, with their brethren. And so when, when the focus of a believer's heart is the Lord, then Christian joy is present. In the spiritual fellowship, we address one another not with worldly chatter, but in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Actually, this word here, speak, is, is a word that is an onomatopoeic word. Actually, the Greek word means is laleo, which, which we get la, 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 la from, right? And, of course, that, that's a singing kind of, in classical Greek, it means to chirp or to babble like a small child. All right, here, the imperative command is to talk with, to converse with. And it, it, it implied is the purity and the joyful simplicity in which the spirit-filled believer converses with others about their Lord. Songs are very powerful. All right, with the whole book of Psalms are songs written by David and others. And, and, that, and in fact, in Psalm 95, in verse number 1, listen to what it says. Now, Psalms are usually, uh, theologians say, Psalms speak of the nature and the work of God the Father. Listen to this Psalm. Psalm 95, verse 1. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. So, and of course it goes on to list all some of the great things God had done in that passage of Scripture. And so we sing about the nature and the work of God, and that comes from inside of us. 
because of what we understand the Lord's done. And then, of course, hymns are songs of praise. And hymns are usually directed uh, at the redemptive work of Christ, God's Son. It's like when, when uh, Paul and Silas were praying in prison and singing, it says hymns of praise in Acts 16, verse 25. After they got done singing, remember there was an earthquake, and of course the soldier who was guarding them was going to take his sword out and thrust it through his, his, his belly because in the Roman uh, culture, if you l- let prisoners uh, go free under your guard, you're going to die. And Paul uh, cries out to him in a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here, we haven't left. And he, the guard calls for the lights, they rush in, and of course uh, he's trembling with fear because of the earthquake. And then finally they say to Paul and Silas, "Believe." Uh, he says, you know, what can, must I do to be saved? And, and then Paul says to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved you and your household. So here in this incredible situation where they're in prison, uh, they're singing hymns of praise. And as they're singing hymns of praise, God is using that to speak the gospel to this jailer. And he uses it. And it comes by something that they could not do, but God did. But they had joy in their heart. And they were different. And then in spiritual songs, Uh, they say, the theologians say, are directed at the Holy Spirit of God or things pertaining to the Spirit. Like it says in in Revelation 15, verse 3 and 4, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O God, the Almighty, righteous and true, and your your ways, King of the nations, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. In other words, Moses was the deliverer. The Lamb of God was the deliverer. And so that's where these songs of praise come out from them. So in other words, spirit-filled believers joyfully converse with others exhorting them to worship their Lord and practice a Christ-conscious life. All music originates in the heart in this passage. When a person is at peace with God, they know it because of the blood of the Lamb. And so the heart of that person indicates not so much the place as the manner and the attitude in which they are singing. They know why they're singing. They know what they're singing about. And they willfully want to do that from their heart. And as they do that, they bring honor and joy to the Lord. One Christian pastor said this, the definition of Christian joy is an emotion springing from a deep, deep down confidence that God is in perfect control of everything. In fact, There is no event or circumstance that can occur in the life of a Christian that should diminish that Christian's joy except your sin. So the thing that robs you of your joy is your remaining sin that you have not put off. 
But you know you have to do? Just go back and put that sin off. For what reason? The joy would return to you. Right? David, when he sinned, prayed to God, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Right? Believe me, when you don't have joy as a believer, you know it. You know it. You're restless. All kinds of stuff going on inside of you. Uh, you're getting knocked from pillar to post spiritually, and you just are not peaceful inside. And so, therefore, you have to look for your sin. Find out where it is. Confess it. Repent of it. Put it off. Put on righteousness and go on with your Christian life. Because we know from 1 John, the Lord's faithful. When we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. That's what he does. But not only is evidence of being filled with the Spirit and have the fullness of God joy, the second thing in our passage in Ephesians 5 is gratitude. All right? Always giving thanks for all things in the name of, of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Are you thankful? Are you joyful today because of what Christ has done? So rather than being discontented with what you have, Christians find pleasure in what God has given them. However meager it may be as far as the world standards or your neighbors, I'm thankful for the humble abode to live in or the jalopy that I drive around, or the occupation that God gives me, or the family that I have with all its dysfunction, and every family is dysfunctional. Every family. Why? Because we're sinners. We live in a dysfunctional world. You're born dysfunctional. You can't get away from it. But God can change all that. But, but gratitude is, is something that is very much needed in the world, in our families, and especially in the church. There are few times and few circumstances in which we do not give thanks. In fact, the spirit-filled believer has a thankful character about them. They're always thanking the Lord and the Father for all things. That's what I noticed yesterday with the men, I, men that I never met, just thanking the Lord for this and that and thanking the Lord for the day and the messages and, and the singing and the, the fellowship with, the, with each other. They were just thankful. It's, it is true that a grateful person is a godly person, that godliness and gratitude go hand in hand. And, and, and in our text, it communicates that thankfulness is the preeminent sign of being filled with the Spirit of God. You cannot be grumbling and complaining and be walking in the Spirit. Sorry, it doesn't happen. Thankfulness is the characteristic the Spirit of God produces in us, but thankfulness, notice in our text, for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, I'm thankful to the Lord for what he has given me. So as it has been said also, the Apostle Paul says that for though they knew God in Romans chapter 1, they did not honor him or what? Give thanks. So even people in the world, they do not recognize 
the common grace that God gives them every day just to wake up and have life is the goodness of God. And some people who do recognize that there is a creator may get up and say, hey, thankful for the beautiful creation. Hopefully that, that unknown God that they worship in their heart will become known by scripture that they may, it may be led to believe in Jesus Christ, who is the creator, and believe in him as their Lord and Savior. It's, it's tragic, but true, that there is little thankfulness in the world, and sometimes often in the church. But people of the Spirit are characterized by constant thankfulness. The Spirit-filled believer, because they are rooted in Jesus Christ, grow and abound in thankfulness. Listen to what it says in Colossians 2.7. It says, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. You know what that means? That you could never be thankful enough. Overflowing means you have a glass and it just keeps coming out the top. That's how we're to grow in gratitude and thankfulness. In in other words, we become exceedingly rich in our thankfulness to God. We become outstanding in it. We excel in it. It actually could mean here that you become an expert in thankfulness. I don't know about you, but can you be around people who are thankful? Is it easy to be around people who are thankful? Yes or no? Yes! Is it easy to be around people who are joyful? Yes! It's easy to be around people who are joyful. Matter of fact, a lot of things get done because of those attitudes, because they're not looking at all the problems and why we can't do things and why we shouldn't do things, and this person did this and that person did that. They're not thinking there. They're thinking about, this is what God wants us to do. Let's do it with joy. Let's do it with thankfulness, and let's get it done. Let's get the gospel to people who have not yet heard it. Let's get it done. See, we need more people who personified such gratitude especially in these difficult days we live. Paul told Timothy when he was going to pastor this church of Ephesus, this is what he said to him, but realize this, Timothy, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be ungrateful. We live in a world that that ungratefulness smacks us in the face. And the third last thing that I put that other one up is this. It leads to harmonious relationships. It says being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, it simply means that, listen, when we're at peace with with the Lord, when we have the joy of the Holy Spirit in us and the the gratitude and, and thankfulness that's produced by the Spirit in us, we get along with people. Because it's not about us, it's about them. It's about our Lord. We get along with people because we are not insistent on our way. It does not bother us if something doesn't get done exactly the way we want. For a spirit-filled believer, unity 
is essential in dealing with people. Spirit-filled believers are subject to others, it says here, in the fear of Christ. That means they have reverence for the Lord. The reason why they strive for harmonious relationships is that they genuinely have reverence for God and love for God and joy for what God has done and thankfulness for what God has done. Their reverence, they reverence God to the point that they do care very deeply about what God says about everything and they're willing to submit to the teaching of the word of God and his authority and their godly fear encompasses both terror because he is God. But it also includes reverence. He is a holy God. And that brings me to submit to him because he's a good God and give him awe in my worship because he's an almighty God. And he has done great things. So we resist the devil on this fourth way. When we put off sin and put on righteousness because it leads to walking in the Spirit and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit and the fullness of God in our life. That's the practical end of this theology, that we can actually see it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your kindness to us in teaching us the word of God. Because if we did not know these things, we could not know what to look for. We would not know what to do. But Lord, you have given us these things, and you taught us from the word of God. Now, Lord, I pray as we go our way, that we would think deeply and long about them. And I pray, Lord, that we would implement them in their, our life. And if there is something that's robbed our joy, something that has caused us not to be thankful, caused us not to want to keep the unity in harmonious relationships, I pray, Lord, you would point it out to us. Point out our sin. Allow us to see it put it off, put on righteousness, and Lord, confess it before you and go on to live and grow in Christ-likeness. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.